Hey everybody, I'm Casey. Uh, so we're potty training, Sophia, which isn't really an intro, but I really want you on my side right now. <laughs> we're like one for six, and the entire house is covered in tarps. It's great. Uh, yeah, I'm Casey. I'm an elder here at Selma Culver City. I'm also a tech bro, or at least that's what I've been told. Um, I was going to do a bit about my shoes because Brad told me last week I had tech bro shoes. And then I asked Sarah what she thought about them. And she was like, "Uh, -uh no. So I guess he was right. Yeah, she, she put me together this morning. Uh, so I guess Brad was right about the tech bro thing. I'm actually one of two tech bro elders. There's also Jeff Lowndes. Uh, he works at Snapchat, which is a larger, more prestigious, younger and cooler company than mine. So we're basically the same. Uh, yeah, I am actually gonna talk about hierarchy today. Uh, so I hope you don't mind if I start with a really nerdy illustration. Uh, this image, which will show up in a second. Uh, this is what I think of when we use the term the rat race. Uh, back in 1950s, this guy, E.F. Skinner, he put a rat in a box, because that's what scientists did back then, right? Uh, he put a rat in a box and he gave it tasks meaningless tasks, but when the rats did them, they got food. So it's like, push the button, get the food, right? Push the button, get the food. And then one day he thought, what if instead of them getting food, every time they push the button, it's just totally random whether they get the food or not. What do you think the rats did? Well, before, when they could get the food reliably, eh, They'd go to the button whenever they were hungry, and yeah, they got, they got fat, but they ate at their leisure. But when it was random, they started pushing the button nonstop. It didn't matter how often the food came. It was like the chance or the uncertainty of when the button would deliver and when it wouldn't. That was enough, almost to the point you would think that the button was the really alluring thing about all of this. Uh, Skinner was a behaviorist, okay? So he studied how to modify and train behaviors. And this discovery, this random button pushing exercise, that's called the Skinner box. It's that thing right there. Uh, it's a phenomenon that shows that a variable ratio of positive reward leads to a higher response rate and the most unwillingness to surrender that behavior. Or in human language, it's gambling. It's gambling. This is not a gambling sermon, by the way, <laughs> just in case anyone was worried. I don't know of anybody flying out to Vegas for the slots. I think most of you would have trouble defining what a bookie is. Nobody's getting hounded by the mafia for your debts, as far as I know. But I do know one addiction, actually, that we, we all struggle with. It's one we've been struggling with really since the fall, and like all of our worst addictions, it's socially acceptable. So if you told somebody that you were consumed by this, they wouldn't even flinch. Some of those people might nod their heads, and a few might even say to you, yeah, me too. In fact, in some ways, this entire city the city of Los Angeles is built on this addiction. Like people move to LA to see this gratified 
in the same way that the gambler moves to Vegas to be closer than the action. It's status. Everybody is addicted to status, all of us. It's the anxiety to be perceived at a certain level in the hierarchy and hopefully be moving upward, right? This is where we get the phrase, keeping up with the gelatins. It's the rat race. It's uh, beneath that little jolt of envy that you feel when you're scrolling through Instagram and you see the beautiful face or the house or the family or the vacation. It's why some of us, it seems like we'll do anything for a promotion, like anything. It's mom guilt. Can I get an amen for mom guilt? Yeah, because it's every time we're caught in comparison with someone else. And it's also all of the neighbors and the families among us who are a part of the wealthiest 1% of the world, but are still deeply in debt just to be driving the right car and go to the right school and belong to the right club and be seen at the right places. Status, it's the overwhelming, endless desire for status. And this, as I said, may actually be the oldest addiction in the world. Because when the serpent tempted Eve, he used an appeal to status. And he said, for God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve, not believing she was already enough like God by being made in his image, by having that status, she ate. Now we're here. Of course, there's another way we could live. Instead of pursuing or holding on to our status, we could, just, we could just give it away. Instead of measuring ourselves against other people, we could just love them and seek their welfare. Instead of relying on all this worldly evidence to feel like we belonged, we could rely on our heavenly citizenship. And like, wouldn't that be a relief? You'd have so much more gratitude if you knew that God made you belong and gave you the most important status of the world. You could be content with what you have and you could celebrate other people for having more without envy. You'd be able to give and it would be natural. It would be fearless. And in the areas where maybe you felt a little bit less than other people, well, you could accept it not with shame, not even with resignation, but with purpose. Because you would know that God made you, he placed you, he gifted you, he shaped you to be exactly as much of you as you are. And you wouldn't have to try so hard to be anything other than that. Today we're going to read uh, my favorite part of Philippians, actually. And it's about the one who possessed all status, the name above all names, and why he gave it up for our sake. Let's read the passage. This is Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, and having the same love, being in full accord 
and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Ah, I love this one. This is compelling for me. I feel like the picture that it paints is so powerful. Paul encourages us toward humility, and he asks us to find that by seeking Christ together. It's a unity he describes of being of the same mind. And then to illustrate the humility he's talking about more fully, he tells us the story of the gospel, but maybe in a way like we've never really heard before. And it's almost like he's asking us, did you ever think about how good and satisfying the life of Jesus was when he dwelt with God before he walked this earth? Did you ever consider that even though he was perfectly loved, and all-powerful, he surrendered all of that just to be on earth. He was despised and rejected. And as if that weren't enough already, he gave himself up for us to the most evil kind of death that there is. Have you thought about it all like that? The story of the gospel is the story of ultimate humility. We're never going to have that much to surrender. We're just not. We'll, we'll never humble ourselves as much as he has. Hey, bear with me, but if Taylor Swift were to lose all that she had tomorrow, God forbid, all her music, her fans, her money, her status, and she was living out of a tent on La Bayona Creek, utterly unknown and alone. If all that happened to Taylor, it wouldn't even compare to what God gave up for us. We come close. Try and imagine the most terrible fall from the heights of glory. The biggest drop you can think of won't come close to what God gave up to be with us. Now, the hard part is, do you know that? Does that kind of gratitude motivate you? Do you love others from that kind of love? Or are you trying to build your own little kingdom? Yeah. I'm kind of a kingdom builder, honestly. Uh, 
I'm always looking for like, you know, power, subjects, goodies, gold. I mean, not all the time, but a lot. I'm pretty sure that when I walk into a room, I'm like the most important thing happening in it, you know? Um, some of y'all are nodding your heads, okay? <laughs> Noted. Uh, y'all, who's the main character in your life? I mean, come on, right? I'm not alone. Y'all have these thoughts. When Paul says to us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Are you just like, yep, check, we're good. Or, are you, you know, maybe you're like me. Your eyes kind of mm, glide right over those verses. See, when life's about us, there's not, not a lot of room for other people. If the most important thing that's happening to you is what's going on in your head, yourself, all your stuff, and not his story of God giving up everything for you, well, how could you possibly love people like Jesus? Where would you find the time, the willingness? Where would you find the room in your heart? Where's the room for people when they're crowded out by all that stuff? Are you really going to be able to love them if you're comparing yourself to them? Status addict is going to struggle to love people sacrificially. They can like people and they can be friendly and kind. Absolutely. But loving people sacrificially is hard when you lack a real awareness of them. It's like you're not really seeing them because you're only seeing them in relationship to yourself. You certainly can't see them as God's holy creation, deserving of your utmost. Now, where do you think this comes from, this status addiction we're all dealing with? Does it sound like familiar yet? I want to talk about Skinner and his box again for a minute. I'm going to talk about another author, a guy named Jaron Lanier. He's a scientist, an entrepreneur, yes, a tech bro. Uh, he created some of the first commercial applications of virtual reality, like 40 years before Apple puts its headset out. He was doing it, okay? So pioneer, successful Silicon Valley dude, deep thinker. I'm going to read a few quotes from a book he wrote to tell this story. This is how he starts the book. Something entirely new is happening in the world. Nearly everyone has started to carry a little device called a smartphone on their person all the time that's suitable for algorithmic behavior modification. We're being tracked and measured constantly and receiving engineered feedback all the time. We're being hypnotized little by little by technicians we can't see for purposes we don't know. We are all lab animals now. And the core process that allows social media to make its money and that also does damage to society is behavior modification. It can be used to treat addictions and it can also be used to create them. For now, 
that process, it's all about the feelings that can be evoked in you, mostly feelings regarding what other people think. For instance, when we're afraid that we might not be considered cool, attractive, or high status, we don't feel good. It is no surprise that BF Skinner was a major player in the earliest days of digital networking. He saw digital networks as an ideal way to train a population for the kind of utopia he saw, one where we'd all just finally behave. This is real, y'all. And I know we live in a dark world, like I believe that, but it also happens to be in the best interests of capital right now to make it seem darker, to make you angrier, more insecure, more fearful, and more addicted to status than you've ever been. And I'm not saying like this is the only thing that causes us to be addicted to status. Remember, this began with the fall as the very first temptation. But what I'm saying is, if any of the love and humility that I preached so far feels like impossible, have you considered your relationship to technology and to this culture, which is consumed with comparison? Why are we so mad and insecure like all the time now? I think it's a status addiction crisis. We've always cared about status. As humans, I mean, that's nothing new, but this fundamental sin problem has been seized upon as a means of making money. And every business that can capitalize on sin turns out to be very profitable. Casinos, right? Gambling, pornography, for sure. Drug cartels, sex trafficking. Like, it's not an accident that some of the most lucrative businesses in the world sell us sin and addiction. But when the addiction is socially acceptable, we don't really see it in that light anymore. Instead, like, we read books about it, or maybe we pledge to improve our relationship to it. It's like a New Year's resolution, right? But the FBI is not going to kick down Mark Zuckerberg's doors and tell him his drug dealing days are over. Status addiction, it's one of those things that's so prolific, it's so wrapped up in everything that we do, like we barely even notice it anymore. So no wonder humility feels hard. Christ emptied himself, and meanwhile, we're so full of anxiety and comparison. A blind and deaf machine is feasting on our negative feelings about ourselves, telling us what to think and feel, to feed us ads, and make money. It's an idolatry problem. We measure ourselves according to the whims of this machine and we long for its approval. Meanwhile, Christ didn't count equality with God, the real living God, to be a thing to be grasped. And yet we wake up every day grasping for something, right? Some identity to make us feel like we belong or we're important and loved. And though, that's even though Paul says we're already all of those things by Jesus' death. God's given us all the status we could ever need. That's why in Romans 8, Paul calls us co-heirs with Christ. That's why in Ephesians 2, he says he has raised us up and seated 
us with him in the heavenly places. That's why one chapter later in Philippians 3, he's going to tell us our citizenship is in heaven. What could be better than that? The author of life itself says you're worthy. He's seen the good and the bad in you, all of it. He knows every time you rose to the occasion, and he knows every time you didn't. He's been your audience for every triumph and every failure. He sees your weakness and your beauty. And seeing all that, all that stuff, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? To glorify himself and to unify us with him. We now belong with that name that is above every name. Is there really some kind of status you think you'll find in this world that's going to compare to that? I mean, if I'm honest, yeah, sometimes, sometimes I do. See, that status, it feels a little mystical, maybe remote. I don't know, not significant enough. It doesn't give me sometimes that sense of self-importance. Maybe I'm looking for that. And maybe it feels like too easy because I didn't earn it. In my pride, I want something tangible. Give me likes, retweets. Give me awards and accolades, followers. I just, I want to be paid attention to, right? Instead of revealing God, I kind of just want people to look at me and see my life. I want them to see me. Do you ever feel that way? When you examine your motives, how you're living, how you're operating, what do you see? Who's the main character? Here's what I see. The trap we fall into, this deceit of sin, is that there's something, something out there in the world that's just going to make us complete. That's what we're looking for, and that is the heart of idolatry. Our heart just says, if I just feel like I can measure up, like I matter, like I have significance, then everything would be okay. And so we spend our days chasing that feeling and stepping on other people to find it. And when status is earned, you're going to have to fight to keep it. Why are we so mad and insecure all the time? Because we're in a fight. We're fighting, fighting phantoms on the internet because the algorithm profits when we feel bad about ourselves. And so most of the time, we're losing. Let me give you a real life example of what I'm talking about. Okay, about 10 years ago, I published my novel. Ooh, not really the important part, but oh, I'll take the clap. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> Here's the really important thing. Uh, I posted about it on Instagram. I can't really remember what I wrote. It was something like, ah, you know, I've been working for five years. I finally did it. You know, it's done. I published a novel, you know. And uh, that post got like 50 likes. And then here's the really stupid part, okay? Sarah posts something. I don't remember what, but it was like 
fun weekend with my friends. Love of the beach, margaritas. Okay? And she gets like 200 likes overnight. And we have like most of the same friends in common on the platform. This is true, by the way, you should ask her. Uh, and it's like the start of our relationship. And I remember I was feeling down, kind of embarrassed. Because here was this thing I'd like, I poured a lot of hard work into. I'd, I'd worked hard. And my future wife just like dunked on me with one weekend of partying, okay? Uh, and uh, I felt small. I'm going to admit it. I felt really small. But um, Instagram is a really stupid way to measure a life. It's a big popularity contest if you let yourself use it that way. And the things that may make you popular, eh, they may not be all that good for you. What I'm also saying is even that desire like to be popular, to win approval, to get more likes than somebody else, it's not good for us. Jesus has something better for you than that. Brothers and sisters, we are competing for our identities instead of living them. And when everything is a fight to keep our status, we will have no room for love and the world will feel like a miserable place. Uh, addiction also has a touch of madness to it. Make no mistake. A soul bowed down to an idol is a terrible thing to behold. And if you think about an addicted society, like that's enough to make the world feel mad. A status addicted society is going to be unwell in precisely the way you'd expect. Everyone becomes a little bit like Eve so that they can't see each other as being made in God's image. And they're blind to that reality, so it's easy to mistreat each other. We accuse. We injure with our words. We treat certain people as expendable or at least not worthy of consideration. Bullying spreads like a disease and then dresses itself up in righteousness. We make examples of people. We publicly shame. We become a mob. People's weakness is revealed. They said something wrong. They did something wrong, whatever it is. We hound them. We get them dismissed from their jobs. We destroy their reputations because we have no room for forgiveness. Our thinking becomes totally black and white. And that's not from discernment, which is separating sin from what's good. No, this is operating out of like rage and despair, which lures us in. And it says things like, you cannot compromise with these people. We see ourselves as the victims, maybe. So we persecute, we make enemies, we lack the patience and the compassion to listen to those people who oppose us, and we announce things like, if you're not with me, you're against me. We prefer the schism to the unity that Paul preached. Doesn't this feel like it's everywhere now? It's how all our political leaders talk. 
It's every newspaper and television show when they're editorializing. It's definitely every national conversation in this country. Everyone is trying to score points on each other to win an argument and silence the opposition, to enrage their constituency. And because, of course, if you want a platform, you need the algorithm. It's how you consolidate power. It's how you wield influence. And if making people angry gets you attention, it's probably useful to say outrageous things. If the world feels crazy, it's because desiring status and power go hand in hand, and we have created a system which rewards our very worst instincts in exchange for both of those things. Here's the part that drives me nuts. Have you heard this dressed up in bad theology? I hear this like all the time. Christians who are deep inside of this vortex of negativity and falsehood, they poke their heads out and they'll say something like, well, of course things are getting worse. We're in the end times. Just put a little theological bow on it, right? Are you in despair about the state of the world? Or you feel like you're surrounded by enemies? Don't worry, it's just the end times. Y'all. Revelation is a complicated text. It's too complicated for one sermon to make sense of. But I can say this much with confidence. John did not write that as a shortcut for our compassion. If we recognize the status vortex as something we don't want to participate in, or something that we're already influenced by, something that's in our life, if we saw it as our own sin, I don't think we'd be quoting Revelation as though it made it acceptable. I think we'd repent. The part of Revelation we should pay attention to is actually when it invokes this passage as it describes all of creation bowing down to Jesus. Let's go back to verse 9, which begins, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, you see, regardless of our status, one day we're all going to bow down. If you believe Skinner, you know, we're just, we're rats. We're trapped in this cage. We're running a race. We're trying to accumulate our goodies, our status, our worldly power. And, you know, the answer is just, you just manipulate people, you know, modify their behavior for the greater good. So comparison, status games, social media, these are all just tools for shaking, shaping human beings. And if society's gone a little bit haywire, a little crazy, Eh, you just retune the algorithm, right? That's one view. Skinner's view is actually similar to what the Romans believed. There was this thing, it was called the Corsa Romana. It was their structure to their whole society. A caste system where you had to do everything in your power to move up. And by making life about status, the Romans made their culture orderly and they encouraged people to virtue. And that's nice. Everything was dictated by this system, right? The seats at the theater, places in the baths, all the way up to like you having your name on buildings, 
okay? And in fact, in the city of Philippi, they would have had a pillar with the names of the most prominent families in the city. The higher up you were on that pillar, the greater your influence and significance. How did you move up? Well, you push other people down. That's one view of power. You wield it to suppress what you don't like and you get people to compete for what you do. Here's another view. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you follow Jesus, you get to climb out of this cage. The race you're running isn't about any of those things. So you get to willingly surrender your status and your power, even your own life. You don't need a platform. You don't need followers. You don't need worldly triumph. You give it all away to God. You get to surrender everything like Jesus did. And because you see Jesus as the main character in your story, you get to see yourself and you get to see other people rightly as they truly are. They aren't your competitors anymore. They're God's creation. So you treat others as more worthy of consideration than yourself. You get to walk in humility. You get to refuse to make enemies. You choose unity and you choose love. And you get to feel the confidence that comes from knowing who you truly are. You get to stop searching the whole world for something to make you feel worthy and significant and you go back to the scriptures and remember that you already are. You already are. And you've been made that way by God himself. Let's pray and we'll take communion, continue to worship. <clears throat> uh, God, I'm, I want to feel significant a lot. I confess that. I don't know why I'm looking around the world like it's going to give that to me. I pray you would just reveal these places in our hearts. I pray anyone who's thought these thoughts or succumbed to these lies, just you'd be making them aware right now, gracefully, gently, but truthfully. I know I haven't always loved my brother, not all the time. Definitely not when I was more online than I should have been. I stopped seeing people as holy and I grew disgusted and pessimistic about the world because it looked hopeless. But those things are a lie. Lord, remind us who you are. Remind us where our identity comes from. Remind us what humility really looks like. Set us free again to lay down all our status 
and just enjoy you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.